Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University and I am host of the Guidelines podcast. I have two resident co-hosts with me tonight, Dr. Mark Stevens uh, and Dr. Uh, Thomas LaRue. We'll hear from them a bit later on. The topic tonight is uh, history of CNS guidelines. Uh, this is uh, one of two guidelines podcasts that, that don't have a specific neurologic or neurosurgical focus, but instead focuses on the broader topic of how uh, our national neurosurgery leadership and guidelines committees work towards developing uh, guidelines topics, uh, the, the thoughts that go into this process for development, and uh, should, with, with our companion uh, podcast, should be a great learning experience. So tonight, I have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Uh, Steve Kalkanis. I've known him for uh, many years through involvement with uh, ANS CNS tumor section activities, uh, as he is past chair of the uh, executive committee for uh, tumors. He's also professor and chair emeritus in the Department of Neurosurgery at Henry Ford and currently the CEO of Henry Ford Medical Group. So to start, I'll ask Dr. Kakanis to give us a bird's eye overview of the genesis and, and evolution of CNS guidelines. And maybe we can discuss some of the history of how the guidelines processes have evolved over time and, and influenced neurosurgical practices. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Kalkanis. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Elder. Uh, Steve Kalkanis here. Uh, I've had the honor of being a past president of the Congress of Neurological Surgeons and, as you mentioned, uh, past chair of the tumor section. But one of my uh, most seminal and just one of the roles that I've really meant the most to me in organized neurosurgery is that I had the opportunity to be uh, the inaugural chair of the Guidelines Committee when the CNS first launched this about 12 years ago. And Guidelines have had a long and storied history in our profession, but it's only, I think, really been in the last few years where um, people have understood the importance to our practice, uh, to our teaching, and uh, just to our future, quite frankly, and the importance of evidence in, in all we do. And uh, I guess the journey started uh, more than a couple decades ago with legends in our field like Beverly Walters and Mark Hadley and Mark Linsky and then so many others who understood that early importance of you know, what do you do? There's, there's equipoise out in the world where, where well-meaning and very thoughtful and smart people are doing spine fusions and decompressions one way versus another, or we're taking out, uh, you know, acoustics or not, or we're radiating brain mets or not and doing surgery or not. And when, when the evidence wasn't clear, I think the, the profession got together and said, well, um, let's look and see what the evidence actually shows. So they started us down this pathway in the early 2000s. And one of the first projects that I was involved with was uh, sort of, I think at the time, the largest guidelines effort, which was understanding the, the treatment comprehensively of brain metastases. And this wasn't just from a neurosurgical perspective. It was, you know, how do you engage radiation oncologists? How do you engage medical oncologists? How do you engage neurosurgeons? And how do you engage patients? Because they were actually involved as well. And how do you interact with other groups in organized medicine, like Astro, for instance, or the ANA and, and the neurologists? So this was our first giant step as neurosurgeons into really saying, not only should we see what the evidence says, but we should actually 
partner with those who are working on it so that we can speak with one voice with neurosurgery in the lead. Just so often in what we do as a profession, we're the tip of the spear. We may be small, but we have an outsized influence. So this was a moment for us to take leadership, not just in neurosurgery, not just in this one instance of, let's say, brain mets in the tumor world, but how do we interact and set the stage for future conversations with our radiation oncology colleagues, with our neurology colleagues, and so forth. So in doing all of that, uh, we came out with the, the largest set of comprehensive guidelines at that time. And I would say, in addition to really setting the stage for the importance of radiosurgery and for uh, just understanding the, the pathophysiology of this disease, this experience taught me that guidelines are so important for another set of reasons, which is really to outline where the field does not yet have all of the answers. And so uh, it's one thing to come up with these level one recommendations, which is great, but I think it's also, I think, a, 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 an important part of the continuous learning that we're involved in as a profession to highlight in every one of these guidelines where the evidence falls short of making a, or getting us to a quote, clear answer so that we can invest research dollars, we can direct clinical trials efforts, and we can put our best and brightest uh, researchers, basic translational, clinical, all across the spectrum into answering these questions because we've done a thoughtful search of the literature. So for so many reasons, uh, the guidelines have gotten us to a new platform. And so from that experience, the CNS said, you know, I think this is something where we can really contribute to our profession. So we formed a, a committee. I was the first chair. And at the time, I remember that uh, as a profession, we were doing one guideline a year, meaning that, you know, one, a guideline that generated from the ranks of neurosurgery from one of the sections. Today, uh, <laughs> I think that number is tenfold. You know, we're, we're, you know, trying to gather resources to, to get eight to 10 guidelines, plus all of the renewals, because we're, we also now are part of the Institute of Medicine rubric where every five years uh, when a guideline comes out after that, we have to do an update and make sure that everything is up to date with literature searches. But, you know, what has happened over time? And as I, as I look back um, at the beginning, people were very worried about medical legal implications. Gosh, if I put out a guideline, does that mean I'm going to get sued if I don't follow the guidelines? Or, you know, if we accept if anybody accepts any money from industry, where they will they be automatically tainted? You know, how are these going to get published? Is this considered scientific? Should people get credit for writing a guideline and being a you know an author on a presentation? All of these things were new at the time. And looking back, um, it, it's it's amazing how we have evolved in a short period of time. Because I will tell you that in looking at our journal, Neurosurgery, where many of these guidelines are published. Um, the, the guidelines publications are some of the most cited publications ever. When you look at people's H indices and, and the numbers of citations, the guidelines efforts powers that. So number one, it shows interest and it shows the, the academic impact. Number two, if you look at our Washington committee and all of the wonderful things that Katie Arrico and others have led, guidelines are touted as really one of the number one tools to deal with insurance companies and payers and also the medical legal world, not to use really as a, a, a risk moment, but actually as a shield to protect the profession and to say, 
um, you know, here's what the evidence shows, here's how we're advocating for our patients. And I can cite numerous examples over the last few years where payers have reversed their, you know, do not cover, do not pay decisions into covering a procedure because of our guidelines. Same thing in the medical legal front. These guidelines were never meant to put neurosurgeons at risk. In fact, they're all written in such a way where they're meant to protect practice as long as it's thoughtfully done. So, you know, I think that we've we've come a long way. And what we're trying to do now by setting up these, these fellowships, and, and, and I congratulate so many of our, our residents, including Dr. LaRue and others who are, who are on for, for moving that needle forward. Uh, now we need to find out, okay, are these guidelines being adopted and are they actually changing clinical practice? And can we show that patients have benefited from what the guidelines are saying? And the early results are just stunning. The answer is absolutely yes, and we need more of this. Uh, but I think as a profession, it just underscores that these efforts don't happen overnight and in a vacuum. And so we need resources. We need the, the power of those who want to volunteer their time to, to sort through this data. Uh, but I will tell you that we have a great rubric for doing it. The, the CNS sponsors these guidelines. They partner with all the sections. That's where the guidelines originate from. Uh, but then our joint guidelines review committee, of which I'm uh, the past chair just stepping down from that role now, that's the body that reviews all of the guidelines that are generated to determine, okay, is it robust enough to give the sort of seal of approval from organized neurosurgery? And there are various levels of endorsement, the full throttle endorsement, meaning yes, it's a guideline, we stand behind all of this data versus you know, uh, other endorsements where we can affirm the educational aspect of it, but we don't think the data is yet ready for prime time. All of these check posts matter because it shows as a profession that we police ourselves. And when we say that uh, we're ready to publish something, it's gone through multiple layers of, of vetting and approval so that uh, for the sake of our patients, we know that what we're saying is safe and, and effective. So I think that uh, guidelines are, are putting us as neurosurgeons on a strong footing for the future. And I guess my plea to everyone is that if you have any interest in this, it's, it's an amazing way of working with colleagues, of making connections, and of making a difference. Well, that was a fantastic overview. Uh, if, if it's okay, we'll ask questions. You know, one, one thing that I, I think people wonder as they're reading the guidelines, you know, is, you know, what, who has, who has oversight really, you know, if I'm looking at a guideline that tells me I should, I should do surgery and radio surgery, say for a, for a brain metastasis, who, what committees, who are the personnel that have really uh, approved that? Is that, is that a, a group of authors within the specific uh, section? Are there is there oversight over those authors? Who you know what what layers has that topic been through? Yeah, Brad, it's a great question. I, over the years, we've tried to be extremely thoughtful about the makeup of the committees and, and the writing teams because obviously that makes all the difference when you get to the final result. And so even to our own, and I won't use the word detriment, but, but obviously it makes the process a lot more complex when you uh, put a team of, of, quote, rivals together that may have differing opinions. But I believe that's really the only honest way to do it so that people who may come at it from very different perspectives can together look at the evidence and, and come to a conclusion that everybody can live with. So there is a rubric that we follow that specifically states that if you're going to be talking about surgery, and any kind of radiation treatment in your specific example, that you have representatives from 
neurosurgery and specifically neurosurgical, neurosurgical oncology, that you have representatives from radiation oncology, that you have representatives from those who run tumor boards across the country and, under, and understand the interplay of clinical trials, that you have medical oncologists who treat these patients and understand the after effects and the downstream consequences of one treatment or another. And oftentimes we have patient advocates that um, you know, have their voice heard in terms of the, the process and, and how these decisions impact them. So um, we never have a, a chapter or a writing team that is, that is homogeneous in the sense that, you know, it's only from, let's say, the tumor section. There's, there, there, there's a deliberate effort to get a very wide range of, of people on there and also to make sure that there are no conflicts of interest. Those that have whatever relationships with industry, if they directly impact those, if those relationships directly impact the topic at hand, you know, we ask them to recuse themselves and not be part of that, that writing group. So um, there, there is a, you know, a very definite process that we follow. Another question I had related to, you mentioned uh, the, the potential positive impacts of a guidelines topic on uh, reimbursement uh, and insurance companies. The, I feel like that knife could cut both ways, though, it, and specifically, uh, you know, a topic, uh, you know, uh, that that your uh, group has has certainly led on uh, being lit uh, has been a, a little bit of a hot topic uh, amongst reimbursement. How, how how does and how should guidelines topics uh, interface, or how should how should insurance companies interface with these guidelines topics in terms of making decisions on reimbursement? Yeah, it, it is a really the quintessential question. It is a hot topic. We have tried painstakingly to understand the verbiage and to write these guidelines such that if there is a thoughtful body of evidence that suggests that, that a standard treatment or any kind of treatment is useful for a patient. We never say, don't do that. You know I mean? We, we wanna be honest and true to ourselves where if there's new evidence that says this is actually gonna hurt someone, then absolutely we'll put that in the guideline. But absent that, we never write these guidelines saying you shouldn't do procedure A and only do procedure B. So that protects us from payers saying, well, we're gonna only choose one or the other. We come back and say, no, our, our guidelines uh, suggest that there's a, you know, a broad range of, of treatments that are appropriate. So that's the first thing. With LIT and with other, quote, newer therapies, and LIT is not new, but to payers, uh, we have to reintroduce it. Um, you know, we have to make a compelling case that sometimes you have to spend a little bit more upfront, but with the understanding that it removes a lot of the downstream costs that might come with standard therapy. And so we try and paint a picture of the entire encounter or episode of care or the entire diagnostic and treatment arc of let's say a brain metastasis where if someone underwent you know, craniotomy, then radiation, then repeat radiation and so on and so forth as opposed to one lit treatment, uh, we have to be comparing apples to apples. And so that's something that we try and uh, you know, present to our payers. And then the other thing too is that so many of these patients with lit, especially at the beginning, had no other options. Their, their option was literally hospice care. And this was a tool in our armamentarium that could offer hope. And so um, one of the ways we've been successful is to frame it in a patient population literally as a last ditch effort uh, for almost you know, compassionate care, heroic measures, whatever you want to call it. And when we show that it actually works, that's very compelling then to take back to that same payer and say, well, 
you know, we, we did it in this patient population because quite frankly, the data wasn't there. Now it is, and we think this should be expanded more broadly. Once you start publishing on that, um, it becomes very, very compelling. And so that's why most of these guidelines, you'll see sort of a, a new emerging sort of innovation section. And it's not just sort of pie in the sky things that might happen 10 years from now. That's meant to highlight treatments where we think we have enough evidence to start having a real conversation. So we're trying to layer it in. It's, it's a dance with these companies. We understand also where they're coming from, but um, there's an important role to play for guidelines for sure. Great. Well, I want to give our, our resident host an opportunity to ask a question. Uh, Dr. LaRue. Yeah. So I'm Thomas LaRue. I'm a PGY7 at the Medical University of South Carolina. Um, first, I just wanted to commend you, Dr. Kalkanis, on just how instrumental you've been in, in making these guidelines and what they are today. Uh, definitely a, a superb effort, and we definitely appreciate it. I actually recently found out at, at the CNS meeting that the guidelines are some of the highest trafficked part of CNS's website, which is awesome. And of course, these guidelines go on to help clinicians and uh, patient care. So they're, they're huge. Um, I, Definitely a team effort, but uh, yep. it's been a journey for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I have two questions for you, and you kind of alluded them to them a little bit in your talk earlier, but um, what are what were some of the hurdles that you first faced when you were making the guidelines? So excellent question, and and there were immense hurdles. One was cost. You know, who's going to publish this? Who's going to reimburse people for uh, not just their time because most are volunteering, but you need administrative support to help compile this. Um, little things like you know, each of our own institutions. I can go to my library at Henry Ford and get whatever I want, but the second I start moving those files into a central server where many people from many institutions can use it and then we cite it as evidence. Well, all of that information is copyrighted and there's a per click cost per article. And when you're sifting through thousands of articles, you know, it, it becomes an astronomical sort of undertaking. Um, uh, again, I mentioned, you know, medical legal concerns, payer concerns, and then academic concerns. You know, we have volunteers who are very thoughtful, but Everyone understands that in order to have an academic a career in academic neurosurgery, you know, you need to publish. And at the beginning, this was thought of as sort of, well, this is a, a nice thing you do on the side, but does it rise to the level of a of a peer-reviewed publication? So amazingly, looking back, that was all in question. And now check, 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 check. You know, we found a way to deal with all of them, including, you know, setting up these foundations where anyone can contribute to the broader umbrella of education blinded to the actual guidelines so that there's no conflict of interest so that we have a war chest where we can use to, to get the data that, that we need. But it's, it's definitely a work in progress for sure. Absolutely. Then my, my second question is, how do you imagine the guidelines will change in, in the next 10 years or so? Well, I, I can dream about how they might change and, and looking at you and Mark and others in, in your generation just starting out to really codify the fact that, okay, there's, there's utility in guidelines to understanding what the evidence shows, but that arrow going from this theoretical, okay, we have the evidence, here's what you should do, to actually showing that it helps people, which at the end of the day, I think motivates all of us, that needs to be done in a very rigorous way. So understanding are these guidelines being adopted? Are they followed? We're thinking about partnering with entities like the American Board of Neurological Surgery. I happen to be a director there, and there's a lot of excitement about, okay, how do you make sure that our 
new graduates and those going out into the world understand what the evidence shows, what better way to do that than the guidelines. So then can you look in the community and say, okay, someone five, 10, 15 years out in practice, are they doing what we think is right from the guidelines perspective and how are our patients faring? I mean, we can always compare outcomes to you know, current practice versus let's say 10 or 20 years ago for the same diagnosis, understanding that yes, you know, treatments have changed, but sometimes it's us that has changed in terms of what, what we're saying should be done. So we need to really take a, take a very specific look at that and, and see. To me, I hope in the next few years, we can really make that case. Those, those were great questions. Um, uh, Dr. Stevens, did you have a question? Yes. Hey there, uh, Mark Stevens. I'm a PGY4 from the University of Oklahoma. Um, I had a couple questions based off of uh, some of the stuff you mentioned. My first one was, was more from a logistical standpoint. When you get these experts from all different fields together, how do you decide which um, which studies and which evidence to review? Does it is it usually just U.S. studies? Does it include inter level one international data? Obviously, you have to put a cutoff somewhere from a time standpoint, given the the amount of data. How do you decide what data gets discussed? This is uh, the most seminal question in anyone in the evidence-based world, and it all comes down to asking the question. In order for guidelines to be effective and successful, you have to have an ultra-specific question because you need a comparator of A versus B, and that determines which publications, which you know, areas of evidence get included. So it can't be, oh, what should we do for brain tumors or what's more effective? It's, you know, is giving post-operative radiosurgery to the tumor bed better than giving whole brain radiation versus nothing. I mean, it's literally down to that level of specificity. So then that allows you to sort and cull from thousands of, of articles out there, which ones address that specific question. So our rule is that the funnel at the top is very wide. You don't want to leave anything out. So we do look internationally. Uh, we try and you know get the highest level of data possible for each subtype, but we take all comers. And then at the end, that's the special sauce of, of the guidelines process, sifting through and understanding which one of those publications will answer the specific question that we're at that we're asking. Thank you. And then uh, my second question, more so, uh, you had mentioned kind of evaluating how how practices have changed going forward based off the guidelines that y'all are publishing. Even on a small scale, um, you know, with quality improvement project, it's very difficult to get like a, a measure of how things are changing uh, when we try to implement something. Is the CNS? Do they, are there any tools that the CNS has that they're they're looking at that, or is it based off of just people practicing and publishing their outcomes going forward? So yes and yes. I think the CNS guidelines committee is um, absolutely looking at this and putting resources behind it. There's an amazing app that was started a few years ago and we thought, oh, it might be a tool just for those interested. And all of a sudden it had a million hits so we can gauge that there's interest. But I think those same interfaces can help us also survey and basically take stock of what's being done as a feedback loop. But it's not just the CNS, it, it's truly everybody in practice understanding that to contribute to the profession, in a in a blinded way, let's just all share data so that we can understand what what the outcomes are looking like. So I think there's there's lots being done. But as you said, um, combing publications and and understanding how outcomes may or may not be changing based on the intervention, that's what we need to to really look closer at. We're running a little short on time. I did want to ask one more question. I I wanted to get a sense from you of of how uh, if you could describe how neurosurgery interfaces with other um, uh, you know, medical fields uh, in terms of either endorsing their 
guidelines, if, if there's a separate process for that, if it's the same process and 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 just generally speaking, if when we read a guidelines topic from, say, a radiation oncology or neurology, can we place the same amount of confidence in their process being as rigorous as ours? I, I love that question because I, I'm smiling because uh, so many people from around the country and around the world want the neurosurgery seal of approval. And so we've had, a, 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 I think, a thoughtful way of doing this. If guidelines originate from neurosurgery, they're originating from the CNS Guidelines Committee and the sections, they go up to the Joint Guidelines Committee for endorsement. But your question is, what about all these other guidelines that originate, let's say, from ASTRO or you know, some other, we, we get a lot from the American Heart Association, from the cardiovascular world, for instance. They, despite the, the fact that their numbers outpace you know, neurosurgeons by 10, 20, 30 to one, oftentimes they won't publish if it remotely, um, you know, impacts neuroscience without our neurosurgical endorsement. And so if you see on there that it's been endorsed by neurosurgery, you know that it's gone through that same rigorous process through the Joint Guidelines Review Committee. Um, and, and, and we take that same rigor for our own guidelines just as you know, accepting guidelines that come from outside of neurosurgery. And, and again, there's varying levels of support. A full throttled endorsement is different, different than us just sort of affirming the educational content because that means that we don't think that either the process or the, the level of evidence uh, you know, justified calling it a guideline. So um, there is a process for it. And, uh, and again, I think it shows how the outside world looks to neurosurgery for leadership. Uh, even when guidelines don't come from us, they, they come from other institutions and other, other fields, basically. Well, and I think it goes without saying, you've played a, a massive role in that in, in helping with um, just you know elevating our guidelines process as a neurosurgery organization to the stature that, that it has. So, so uh, you know, we, we certainly uh, thank you for all the tireless uh, hard work that goes into this. I've you know, written a few guidelines papers. I, I know the work that goes into it. I, I can't imagine all the work that you've had to do over the years that, that have really elevated our, our field uh, in this regard. So uh, we're, we're out of time. I want to thank Dr. Kalkanis for all that he's done for, you know, our field uh, as neurosurgery, specifically for me, uh, our section, uh, our tumor section. Uh, I want to thank him for joining us today. Uh, we, I think we had a great topic and a great discussion. Uh, for our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines topics and updated guidelines podcasts. Thank you to our two guest host residents uh, for joining us today and uh, contributing questions. And to all of our listeners, good night.